Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 42, the season 3 finale. It is Friday, 10 November 2023. I'm Sarah and I am your host. And is it just me or does it feel like this year needs to be over already? It's like when you're really tired and it's late at night and you think to yourself, been a big one better get to bed and you do all of your evening ablutions and just before you hop into bed you glance at your phone and it's like 7 45 that's how i'm feeling re 2023 at the moment which is probably why i'm not as ragey but there being christmas decorations up everywhere already because to me that feels correct I just needed to get to that point of the year between Christmas and New Year where we don't know what day of the week it is so the girlfriend can have a little rest, have a little recharge and absolutely smash 2024. But until then, and for the last time this season, I get to ask, what's in the briefcase this week? friend, I have a special treat for you. It is an audience with the Chief Justice of the Federal Court of Australia, all the way from Melbourne, the Honourable Deborah Sue Mortimer. Chief Justice Mortimer was super generous with her time and insights and even put up with several many of my stupid jokes. So I hope you enjoy this very special conversation as much as I personally had recording it. Season three of The Briefcase is brought to you by our friends at the University of Queensland Law School. Check the show notes for a master's custom built for you. I am absolutely delighted to be sitting today, albeit remotely, across from the wonderful Chief Justice Mortimer. Thank you so much for making the time to chat to me today, Your Honour. How are you? I'm very well, Sarah. Thanks. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Could we start off by talking a little bit about the federal jurisdiction and what types of matters it actually hears? Sure. So the federal court, um, as I'm sure your listeners understand, is a statutory court uh, created by a 1976 piece of legislation and created with a more limited jurisdiction than it now has. So it gets its jurisdiction from statutes. So in the early days, it was the court was created really to deal with matters of bankruptcy, to deal with matters of industrial and employment law, and to deal with the newly created administrative law jurisdiction, both in terms of judicial review under the ADJR Act and also appeals from the AAT. But um, over the, the course of the more than 40 years that the court's been in existence, its jurisdiction has expanded as it gets new jurisdictions conferred by statute, and it now has jurisdiction conferred over it by more than 150 statutes. And the court is now, the court's work is now organised firstly between its original jurisdiction, that is its trial jurisdiction, and its appellate jurisdiction, in which um, we hear appeals either from a single judge sitting in our court or sometimes from uh, Division 2 of the Family and Federal Circuit Court, which has some overlapping jurisdiction with us in migration, employment, bankruptcy and general federal law. 
So we um, we exercise jurisdiction in what is now divided into 16 practice areas. They range from we have some criminal law jurisdiction now, not much but a little. We have native title. We have commercial and corporations jurisdiction under various statutory regimes, including consumer protection, trade practices. We have a very large and active intellectual property jurisdiction. We have a very large and active employment and industrial relations jurisdiction, admiralty, tax, and administrative and constitutional law and human rights. So very broad. Sounds like not a boring day in sight then. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Our judges are mostly working across I'd say between 10 and 16 of those practice areas. So they have very varied workloads. Yeah. So what would be the most common matter that the jurisdiction sees? It sounds like it might be industrial. And what's the most unique or rare area of law that you might see? So um, overwhelmingly, the highest proportion of work is migration work. And that accounts for close to half of the court's work. Um, both in the original jurisdiction and on appeal, perhaps not as much in the original jurisdiction. But you're right, Sarah, that employment and industrial relations is uh, one of our biggest areas and probably a lot of the commercial areas would be the other main jurisdictional area. The rarer cases, uh, admiralty, although the court has an international reputation for admiralty work, Um, those cases, uh, arresting ships where there are commercial disputes about those ships, it doesn't occur very often, but it, of course, involves an awful lot of money and there's a lot at stake in admiralty when those cases arise. Um, We also have, for example, a defamation jurisdiction, and that used to be very rare that we would get defamation cases, but these days we get quite a lot of defamation cases. And why do you think that is? Well, uh, it's, I think, become a jurisdiction where uh, practitioners and their clients like the efficiency that our court gets through its work with, Mm. and we don't have juries for those kinds of cases, so we can deal with them very efficiently. Right. Okay. And when you talk about the criminal jurisdiction, I'm assuming that's with regards to federal crimes? It is, um, but it's mostly in relation to cartel conduct at the moment. Um, We are waiting to see whether the federal government will confer broader criminal jurisdiction on this court, but that's a matter for the government. All right. So what is the biggest point of friction in the court at present, Your Honour? Look, I think it's it's always really helpful when practitioners really take on board what the court says in its practice notes. And it is the case that sometimes we find that practitioners perhaps aren't as familiar with those practice notes as we would like them to be and perhaps don't take on board the messages that those practice notes give. Uh, The central practice note about discovery is a good example where we, the court expects, and it says in that practice note, that parties will resolve um, discovery between themselves in a cooperative way 
without approaching the court for orders for general discovery until all negotiations about discovery have been exhausted. Right. Now, we, despite that, we still have a lot of practitioners who come to court on a first case management hearing and ask for an order for discovery. Mm-hmm. And the response is, well, have you read the practice note? Do you see that you're supposed to have negotiated with your opponent and exhausted all options for negotiation about discovery and only bring to the court matters about discovery that you can't resolve cooperatively? Mm-hmm. Um, And almost invariably, once that's drawn to practitioners' attention, um, they then do respond positively and proactively. But it's clear that they haven't really understood that that's the modern approach that the court takes and that the perhaps more old-fashioned approach of just going to the court and saying, I want an order for discovery, isn't the way that the court expects litigation to be conducted. So it sounds like the court is definitely embracing more of a collaborative approach um, that sees that work being done by the by the practitioners outside of the court system, which would then free up the judges to do the work that's absolutely necessary in those cases, which makes sense. Well, and also to write our judgments as quickly as we can. So although from the practitioner's perspective, the case might seem to finish after the hearing, when judgment's reserved, and that's when the judge's work really starts. And judges have to have enough time to write judgments. Um, And in order to get that time, they have to be ensuring that their other proceedings are being run as efficiently as possible and not occupying more resources than they need to. You can imagine that that would be a very embarrassing circumstance to find yourself in court being asked if you've read the practice direction. So if there's one takeaway from this from this chat, it's read the practice direction, otherwise you may very well get a very big embarrassing moment in court. Yeah, I think it's something that's easily avoided mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and in our court uh, those practice notes are really very important mm-hmm. and and the judges do expect litigation to be conducted consistently with those practice notes. Is there anything different about the federal court from other courts in the Australian judicial system that really stands out to you, Your Honour, that you'd like to sort of bring to the profession's attention, be it just its ethos or any innovative practices that have been recently introduced into the jurisdiction? There's one feature of the court that's always been a feature of the court that is different, Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are two practices I might mention. Um, The feature of the court that's different is that our judges exercise both original jurisdiction and appellate jurisdiction. So we, uh, unlike all the state superior courts, which have a separate court of appeal, um, we are both a trial court and an appellate court. So each judge might sit as a trial judge and then might also sit as an appellate judge on decisions of their colleagues. Right. So that makes for a very um, respectful and collegiate court because we're always sitting uh, on appeal from each other, so to speak. Yes, of course. And that's a, that's a, this court is unique in that in that sense in Australia. Yes. Um, 
and two of the other features that I'd um, that are more recent, one much more recent than the other, um, in our native title jurisdiction, which is about recognising the native title of uh, First Nations people around the country over particular areas of land, the court has developed uh, since the Native Title Act was enacted in 1992 a practice of going out on country and holding hearings on country in all sorts of remote locations, in marquees, under trees, in town halls, just out in the open. And that's a very unique part of the court's native title jurisdiction, very much appreciated by First Nations claimant groups to have the court come to them on their country. Um, And I think the other feature that is but what I'm particularly proud of as Chief Justice is, and that was really a an innovation of my predecessor, James Allsop, is the development of remote hearing technology to a very sophisticated level, very sophisticated and reliable systems that we have using Microsoft Teams and sometimes WebEx to conduct hearings. And we have continued with that post the COVID pandemic where it's appropriate. We continue to have um, remote hearings. Sometimes we have hybrid hearings with some people appearing in person. And if there are interstate practitioners, uh, judges permit them to appear by teams. And that saves a lot of costs for parties. Oh, that's fantastic. So you mentioned the Honourable James Allsop. So how long has your honour been in the top job of Chief Justice? Well, I was uh, sworn in on the 7th of April this year, so I haven't quite been in the job six months yet. That's fantastic. What's the most surprising thing Your Honour has learned about being Chief Justice in that time? I think the most surprising thing is how how broad the job is. Hmm. So I've been a judge on this court for 10 years before I was appointed but there are a whole lot of things about the role of Chief Justice that I wasn't really aware about. So I've been surprised about um, a lot of it is external facing work, about uh, interacting with the profession, interacting with other heads of jurisdictions, with professional bodies and interacting internationally with other courts in our region and I suppose just the sheer volume of correspondence that um that a chief justice receives yes has, been, has taken taken a bit of getting used to i'm so sorry i was probably about 90 percent of that correspondence <laughs> not at all not at all yeah. drop in the ocean sarah i assure you okay good to hear good to hear so if your honor could wave a magic wand and you could change any australian law what would it be and why Look, I think it would be insofar as the law deals with this rather than it being a matter for government policy, Mm. I would like to see more even funding for litigants who need to access the courts. How do we achieve that? Well, as I say, it's partly government policy. It's not really purely a matter of legislation, Mm. although if there was enough political will legislation could assist in guaranteeing funding for people for certain categories of cases. Mm. Um, I do think it's still the case that there are considerable numbers of people who find it 
difficult to pay for legal representation and that mm -hmm. results in a lot of inequality in the way that people's cases are presented. Do you find that you get many self-represented litigants come through the federal jurisdiction? Yes, that this our court has quite a number of self-represented litigants, particularly in some of the administrative law areas, in bankruptcy, in migration. Mm. Uh, those are probably the three key areas where we get a lot of self-represented litigants. Yes. Any particular tips for practitioners who might be appearing against a self-represented litigant in your jurisdiction? Uh, look, I think it's important to understand that most self-represented litigants are very genuine and at the core of their proceeding or their complaint is uh, an injustice they feel or something that they feel they're entitled to. And their lack of experience about court processes and protocols can sometimes mean that it's easy to get frustrated with the way they approach their litigation and it's easy to lose sight of the fact that at, at, in the centre of, of their concerns will be a very genuine concern about how they've been treated or what's happened to them. And so that the more that practitioners who are opposed to self-represented litigants can try and focus on that what's this the really central issue that's troubling the person mm. um, otherwise help them navigate some of the processes although that might seem for a, an opposing practitioner like something that might not be in their client's interests ultimately it is in their client's interest to have a matter resolved as effectively and efficiently as it can be mm. and sometimes the right thing to do in those circumstances is to assist a self-represented litigant to try and get to the real issue and get it decided. Yeah, absolutely. What do you most hope to achieve during your tenure as Chief Justice, Your Honour? Uh, well, what I've said at some of the meetings I've had with the profession around the country is that I hope that this court continues to be recognised as a court that strives to give justice to every litigant that comes to it mm -hmm. in a fair economical way without too much technicality mm -hmm. and that strives to encourage parties to really get to the real issues in dispute between them mm -hmm. because ultimately that's the job of the court is to decide what the real issues in dispute between the parties are not to stand on technicality, not to get too hung up on process or and to help parties avoid getting too deeply in their trenches mm. and losing sight of what the real issues are that need to be decided in a case. And this court has always, I think, tried to help parties and practitioners focus on those matters and I would like to see that continue. I would also like to see this court recognised as a good place to work, a place that all its staff enjoy working in and a place where they all staff get a sense of satisfaction out of being part of the administration of justice. That's a, a brilliant objective, Your Honour, and I obviously wish you very, very well in achieving that, particularly given the state of the profession otherwise. 
I think a lot of lawyers are burning out and they're finding less and less satisfaction in the practice of law and the administration of justice. So it's um, a very noble objective to try and keep as many passionate individuals in the system as possible. So that's wonderful. Yes. Now I'm about to launch another podcast that uh, deals with the knowledge and skills gap between university and the real world of practice. I hesitate to tell your honour the title of this particular project because it includes somewhat of a swear word in the title, so I will tell you offline. But given the subject matter of that particular podcast, I wondered if I might ask you a couple of silly fun questions. Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent. A bit of a reflective exercise, if you will. So what is something that university didn't prepare your honour for in your work in, first of all, legal practice? as a practitioner. Right. Well, I think, and can I preface this by saying that I think universities have got a lot better at doing this um, than when I went to university, which was now a very long time ago, Sarah. (laughs) um, I think there wasn't, when I was at university, there wasn't the emphasis on law in practice. Right. We got a pretty theoretical kind of learning I think that was something that I was surprised about, that when I did go into practice, the theory of the law didn't quite match what the clients walking in the door were telling me was their problem. Yes, I think that's probably an experience that everybody experiences. You get the theory, but you don't get the practical realities, and that is a complete shock. Mm. What is one thing that surprised you then when you went to the bench? You know, right from the start of your legal career at law school, you're Mm. reading judgments all the time. So you're reading the work product of judges Mm. all the time. But I don't think it's difficult to appreciate what goes into producing those judgments (laughs) and how time-consuming they are. Yes. uh, And and frankly, how much how much care and and thought judges put into their judgments, into the findings they make, into the conclusions they reach. These are matters that really judges do take very seriously and take a lot of time and thought. And sometimes that's what we criticise for, how long we take to make some of our decisions. Mm. But uh, by and large, that is because uh, we, we take very seriously the power that we have mm-hmm. over parties. Do you get training when you're appointed the, the Chief Justice or do you just get appointed and just start work straight away without any any sort of orientation, as it were? Oh, look, uh, you basically start straight away. It's There can be a period of handover with your predecessor, depending yes. on the between the announcement of your appointment and, and your commencement date. In my case, um, there was not much time between um, the announcement of my appointment by the federal government and the day I needed to take office. So no, and it's, it's it, there's not a lot of training and there's actually not a lot of training provided to people becoming judges generally. Mm. I mean, our system assumes that senior legal practitioners will be able to make that transition to being a judge seamlessly. Mm. I don't 
I think it's now understood that is not necessarily a correct assumption and that uh, new judges should be provided with more training and that is happening. Uh, And there is a a much more consistent and systematic approach to giving new judges training in how to be a judge and what it means to be a judge, and that's a very good thing. And I imagine dealing with any kind of well-being issues that flow from wearing such a heavy burden, really. Yes, and I think that's another area that has been neglected for a long time that's now being um, appropriately addressed. Mm. You know, judges, depending on the jurisdiction, uh, particularly some of the state jurisdictions in crime, um, judges are dealing day in, day out with very traumatic subject matter and um, they are human beings and they are affected by the subject matter that they have to hear day in, day out, and they deserve uh, appropriate support. But even in our court's jurisdiction, um, our court deals with matters that can be confronting and in any event deals with a lot of matters that can be very high profile in the media all the time and where there is a very much uh, at stake for a party. It might be their liberty, it might be their business, it might be their reputation. And so judges feel those pressures and it's appropriate that they have access to good wellbeing support so that they are able to do the job, their jobs to the best of their ability. Yes, absolutely. Now, that's a fantastic development. So I always finish these interviews on a rather silly note, and that is by asking a would-you-rather question. So, Your Honour, would you indulge me? Of course, Sarah. (laughs) Thank you. Chief Justice Mortimer, would you rather go back in time and be a law student again or go back in time and be a first year law graduate again? Oh, definitely a university student, Sarah. No question about it. And why is that? They are. Well, because they're, um, looking back on it, they're carefree times where you have this marvellous opportunity just to learn and absorb all sorts of things um, and to be at a point in your life where you generally don't have a mortgage and you don't have children and you don't have perhaps as many worries as you have later in life. And I can think of nothing better than winding back the clock and going back to university. It would be fantastic. I know, right? (laughs) I wish that was a thing. We didn't appreciate it then. That's the problem. I know, but you can't tell people either because you try and tell people to appreciate it now and they go, no, no, it's terrible. You have no idea what it's like. Yeah, and look, and look, it is, you know, I think university has a lot more pressures now than it did when I went through university. So I've probably got rose-coloured glasses on about that. Mm. But I still think it's a pretty fantastic period of one's life and ought to be treasured. Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Your Honour. It's been an absolute delight and one of the highlights of of our little show. So thank you again. Oh, you're very welcome, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. It's time to close her up. 
See you next time. I'm Sarah Kral and this is The Briefcase.